Well, afternoon. I'm Arthur Herman, senior fellow at the Hudson Institute, and I want to welcome uh, those of you in the audience here at Hudson, and also welcome the audience at C-SPAN to what I think is going to be an absolutely fascinating, and I would venture to say probably unique event that's taking place right now uh, in discussion about uh, the present, past, and future of the U.S. Congress. Now, as almost all of you know who are at least in this room, uh, the big buzz has been in the last uh, couple of a month and a half has been about uh, the prospect of a GOP-dominated uh, Congress coming in January. Uh, everybody uh, who has an office in this town has ideas about what that GOP Congress should be doing has their shopping list or have been writing about it. I myself have been one of those, and there's a couple of items that, are, uh, that, that I would like to highlight to that. But we don't have actually any current members of Congress with us because our purpose here uh, this afternoon is slightly different. They're, which na is, they're napping this they're afternoon. They're napping this afternoon. Out, yeah. Our purpose here today, what we're going to talk about is whether uh, – what co the next Congress does is as important as how and why it does it and what it is involved to be, in a sense, part of Congress, to be the legislative branch in today's political, cultural milieu. Now, just to set the background slightly, um, in 1932— Something happened in American government and the history of American government. Uh, and that was the election of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And with that election, a decisive shift began underway of power accruing to the executive branch from the other two competing branches. As you all know, the three-branch uh, system, legislative, judicial, and executive were seen by the founding fathers as a set of, of coordinating, we would even say countervailing interests in terms of the discussion and the way in which government in a self-governing republic such as the United States would take place. Starting in 1932, more and more power began to accrue to the executive branch. The argument being that the executive branch and its agents had more information had, uh, more, uh, had a quicker response time to crises like the Great Depression and were therefore in a better position in order to carry out policies and to implement policies uh, that would tend to the nation's welfare and also to its future prosperity. That, that acc accrual of power to the executive branch accelerated with World War II, where again, the, the, the assumption was that only the executive branch has the skill and speed with which to respond to uh, international crises such as the outbreak of war uh, and to deal with issues of maintaining uh, America's uh, security uh, and also to helping to maintain uh, peace uh, around the world uh, and in support of our allies. Uh, that process then became increasingly twofold in the 1940s and 1950s. Um, now, there were some voices that spoke out against this 
sort of drift of power to the executive branch. Uh, figures like, for example, Robert Taft, uh, political scientist Wilmer Kendall, who re-emphasized the 1950s, the importance of the legislative branch as, an, as the f- main fulcrum for a self-governing republic like the United States. But by and large, the political scientists, the policymakers, felt that this drift of power towards the executive branch was not only inevitable, but also desirable. And if you look at the kinds of figures who talked about American politics, leading figures in discussing politics in the 1950s and 1960s, uh, James McGregor Burns, uh, Richard Neustadt, all of the attention and focus was on what the executive branch was able to do and the ways in which to expand its power. Uh, and in fact, an entire school, Kennedy School of Government, was founded as a way to sort of enhance this role of the executive branch and its powers and its potentialities as a part of the American political system. Um, the time may have come at the end of six years of the Obama administration to rethink that shifting balance of power within the United States government and to ask the question about whether that growth of power in the executive has been a good thing or a bad thing overall and what are the steps that are necessary to, if not necessary, reverse it to reassert the power of the other two branches and in particular the power of the legislative branch. And that's what we're going to be talking about here today. And the person who has put his cards on the table, his conceptual cards on the table, uh, in this regard is my colleague and distinguished fellow at Hudson Institute, uh, Christopher DeMuth. Now, Christopher DeMuth, uh, as far as I know from his biography, has never worked in Congress, has never been connected. As a summer intern. As a summer intern is his only, his only, his only surviving thread. However, Christopher DeMuth has, during his years working for two Republican White Houses, and then during his years as, a, uh, as president of the uh, American Enterprise Institute, is probably, I would say, this town's leading expert on regulation uh, and on regulatory reform. Not only why regulation happens, but also the ways in which it has encroached upon aspects of American culture, of American society in ways, and American government in ways that are not entirely desirable and what to do about that. And I think what happened, I'm, we'll have to ask him and see if this is the thought process involved. At a certain point, watching the steady growth of regulation in the United States government, and particularly by executive branch agencies, I suspect what happened at some point is that my colleague asked himself, why is this happening? And that part of the answer was the answer was what Congress ought to be doing and isn't. And that's going to be, I think, the starting point for us to understand what it is a restoring a constitutional Congress is about and what my colleague Christopher DeMuth has to say about that particular topic. I'm going to sit down. We're all Uh, let me start by saying that those uh, who were coming to the building Christmas party, uh, that's in the lobby. That's not here. Uh, so you can, just, uh, you can just go back down. Uh, Arthur, thank you, thank you very much. Uh, thank you for that uh, interesting 
and kind introduction, and I partic I'm particularly uh, gratified uh, that uh, Senator uh, Don Nichols, one of the ablest uh, legislators of uh, the modern era, came to town in 1980 uh, after the 1980 elections, uh, would uh, come here to uh, discuss uh, some of these issues uh, on the day after the 113th uh, Congress uh, has, uh, has adjourned. Last month, the uh, Republicans won solid majorities of both houses of Congress. I maintain uh, that in so doing, they have gotten themselves into a terrible fix. <laughs> For they're going to be taking charge of a branch of government <coughs> that, through decades of delegation and disuse of its constitutional powers, has terribly hobbled its ability to exercise uh, effective checks and balances, to play the constitutional checks and balances game. And they are going to be facing an executive branch that has accumulated tremendous autonomous power as a result and is now under the management of a left liberal president who is determined to exercise those powers to the hilt. Uh, this is a, a partisan problem for the Republicans, <laughs> but it is also a constitutional problem for all of us. Uh, my essay that you have, uh, A Constitutional Congress, was published shortly before the election in the Weekly Standard. It addressed the partisan question, but its genesis was in earlier uh, writing on the constitutional one. I had documented Congress's wholesale delegation of its taxing, spending, borrowing, lawmaking powers to the executive branch and viewed with alarm the growing concentration of power in a single branch and a single individual. Uh, but it occurred to me <clears throat> that a time of fully divided government, when one party controlled the Congress, Article One, and one party controlled the executive, Article Two, uh, might uh, provide some opening for an institutional reboot. Um, uh, to paraphrase uh, James Madison, uh, the uh, partisan interests of a congressional majority might be connected to the constitutional rights of the place. So when it appeared that we might be in for a time of fully divided government, I sat myself to thinking about how that connection might be accomplished, and I came up uh, with a five-part plan for, for congressional uh, restoration. Uh, I noticed that uh, five-part plans are very popular, uh, for dieting, dating, making a resume, other earnest endeavors. So I thought that this might draw attention to my ideas. Um, there's a fundamental uh, difficulty here uh, that has to be acknowledged and emphasized. The modern age has not been kind to the representative legislature. Uh, this idea that we should be governed by elected representatives of local districts who gather together to make the laws uh, that we live our lives by, by hammering out compromises among differing, competing, conflicting interests and values, uh, was uh, an original embodiment of Republican aspirations against the prerogatives of kings and autocrats. But that was a very long time ago. And it was a time when politics and government were naturally constrained by what economists call high transaction costs. 
when travel and communications were slow and costly, legislative sessions were critical occasions to learn of developments in other sections of the nation, uh, to take the measure of other political leaders, friend and foe, uh, to uh, forge alliances, make compromises uh, far from the gaze of the hometown crowds. When political organizing was costly, interest groups were few and broad-based, based, and their demands on government were general. When law enforcement and program administration were costly, the executive branch could perforce do only a few things. In that world, representative legislation was not beanbag, uh, but it was at least manageable. In the modern age, high affluence and high technology have disrupted all of those traditional functions. Legislators no longer need to schlep uh, to Washington to find out what's happening around the country, to form positions on uh, national political questions, or to plot and dicker with their peers. All of those things can be done instantly and at far lower cost through the media and direct communications. We now have thousands of very well-organized, uh, very well-heeled lobby groups devoted to every imaginable cause. Their abilities to monitor, reward, and sanction individual legislators has drastically reduced the space for legislative deliberation and compromise, and it has created new opportunities among politicians for championing uh, national uh, rather than local uh, interests. Uh, the pressures for an endless array of government interventions has overwhelmed legislative <coughs> capacities, the disciplines of the old committee system and seniority system, and the falling costs of administration have empowered the executive branch, have greatly augmented its natural advantages over the legislature, uh, advantages born of hierarchy, specialization, the ability to multiply functions indefinitely. In the 18th and 19th century, lawmaking was legislative. It was, uh, was custom-made. It was bespoke uh, lawmaking. Uh, in the early 20th century, say, of the New Deal, uh, it became uh, industrial age executive lawmaking. Lawmaking in America today is uh, information age uh, executive lawmaking. The basic congressional adaptation has been to delegate to the executive agencies. Congress sets very broad goals. Uh, legislators are in favor of clean air. They're against discriminating against the handicap. The authority for actually achieving the goals is given to the agencies uh, with broad discretion to pursue those worthy goals uh, through various regulatory procedures. The individual member, senator, representative, in place of the age-old give and take of collective legislating, uh, adopt a new uh, business model. They set about uh, influencing the decisions of this growing executive uh, behemoth on behalf of local national constituency groups. The committee leadership structure is supplanted by a party partisan leadership structure devoted to supporting uh, or opposing the incumbent president, whatever he may do. Uh, regular order, uh, especially in budgeting, taxing, and appropriating, uh, collapses under the weight 
of a thousand worthy and unworthy causes uh, clamoring for attention. Now, I said I had a five-step plan. I'm just going to give you the first three steps. If you want to know anything about four and five, you're going to have to read the article. Uh, the first step in my uh, uh, congressional makeover uh, is for Congress to reclaim uh, its many authorities for taxing, appropriating, and borrowing that it has abdicated to the executive branch in recent years. Uh, critically, uh, this would be done as soon as the 114th uh, convenes, and it would be strictly a matter of constitutional housekeeping and uh, renovation. It would have no policy content about spending levels uh, or immigration policy or the powers of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau or any of the other matters on which the administration and the, and the Republican Congress will be sharply uh, divided. And in that manner, when the President was presented with the bill for his signature, he would face a pure choice a clear choice of whether or not to prevent Congress from reclaiming delegated powers and exercising them as the Constitution provides. That formulation, I think, to some seemed a little bit prissy uh, when it was first uh, advanced, uh, but I'm happy to say that its intense practicality uh, became apparent uh, almost immediately after the election when President Obama uh, made his long uh, advertised uh, <coughs> and highly controversial changes to immigration po policy by executive order. The Republicans uh, who were opposed to that action uh, said uh, in the next day or two that they were going to stop it with a rider to the appropriations of the U.S. Customs and Immigration Service. But then, a day or two later, there was a, uh, another embarrassed apology, another report. Oops, sorry, we just discovered, we hadn't even realized this. The CIS, the Customs and Immigration Service, is one of those agencies that is completely financed by its own fees. It's completely independent of congressional appropriations, so sorry, there's nothing we can do about it. In the end, the budget legislation that was finally uh, passed last uh, weekend extended appropriations uh, for the 2015 uh, fiscal year all the way through to October, with the pointed exception of the Department, Department of Homeland Security, where CSIS uh, resides, which has to be reappropriated in February by the new Congress. But that in itself does nothing, for the fact remains that the CIS doesn't need no congressional appropriations until the statute granting it independence is rescinded. And if that recession is done as part of a bill that also prevents CIS from implementing the President's unilateral immigration policies, he's certainly going to veto it. And the political controversy will all be about the substance of the immigration policies rather than the central constitutional point. I want to note one thing more about this controversy. USCIS, Customs and Immigration Service, gained its financial independence as part of the Homeland Security Act of 2002, which was signed, uh, passed uh, at President Bush's uh, uh, instance in the wake of the 9-11 terrorist attacks. An important part of the delegation story going back over the decades is <coughs> that extraordinary powers are delegated from Congress to the executive in the face of emergencies that require fast action and then they continue to rest in the executive branch when normal times return. Uh, 
The broader lesson is this. Crisis and urgency favors the executive. Normalcy, routine, and patience favor the legislature. That is the essential reason why Congress needs to reclaim the many financial powers, financial uh, constitutional powers it has given up in a manner that is shorn of ancillary crisis-provoking uh, battles with the president over immigration policy or the powers of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau or over raising the debt ceiling. Uh, following the Republican uh, debacle, uh, of the last uh, debt ceiling crisis in the fall of 2013, Congress simply handed over its borrowing power uh, to the Treasury. The Treasury can borrow at will uh, to, uh, to pay its bills uh, until uh, this coming uh, March. That power, too, needs to be reclaimed as part of an unadorned act where Congress is simply declaring its readiness to resume the routine exercise of its constitutional responsibilities. The exercise of those powers in competition with the executive is always going to involve difficult uh, questions of political tactics and strategy, and the Republicans uh, are not going to win all of them by any means, but at least the Congress will have a fighting chance. It does not have a fighting chance today. Step two is to reinstitute uh, the spending power. Uh, this is both the least controversial, as an abstract matter, uh, of the proposals, uh, but also the most problematic and difficult as a practical uh, matter. Congress's inability to even pass a budget and government funding on a regular basis is the source of widespread contempt uh, and uh, ridicule. Uh, uh, a view shared by many people in the Congress itself. Uh, virtually every member of Congress will tell you uh, that uh, resuming regular budgeting and appropriating would be a splendid idea. And Speaker Boehner and Senator McConnell have both vowed to set things straight uh, as soon as they get back to town in January. This would not require legislation. President's signature is not part of it. All they have to do is resume Congress's own procedures for annual budgeting and appropriations, procedures that it established in the Congressional Budget Act of 1974, uh, but has uh, almost completely ignored now for several decades. But <clears throat> adhering to the discipline of a budget, and passing 12 regular appropriation bills by the end of each summer uh, will require a radical change in congressional structure and culture, a change in the adaptations Congress has made to modern politics that I alluded to a few minutes ago. The evisceration of the committee chairman especially of the taxing, appropriating, and budgeting uh, committees, has cleared away internal congressional obstacles <clears throat> to spending growth uh, and uh, a multiplicity of interest group uh, tweaks that individual members are under constant pressure uh, to uh, accede to. Uh, the uh, decline of the committee members uh, in the, uh, and the transfer of their powers to the party leadership was uh, dramatically illustrated in the past week uh, in the uh, humiliation of finance uh, chairman uh, Ron Wyden in the Senate uh, at the hands of his, uh, his party leadership. 
the annual continuing resolution replacing appropriation bills in which the entire government is funded for a period of time by one single bill has uh, created a new power structure at the level of the uh, party leadership uh, but has played strongly to the advantages of the executive branch because it results in one big annual uh, crisis. I worked in the uh, uh, Reagan administration, Arthur mentioned, uh, for several years. Uh, and when I was there, Congress frequently, routinely, interfered with excellent, well-thought-out policy initiatives that we were pursuing by, uh, in regulation, in antitrust, uh, other areas, uh, through riders uh, to the appropriation bills of OMB, the Treasury Department, uh, the Justice Department, other agencies. Um, We'd, we'd see the riders, we'd see if we could work around them, you know, is there something we can do in face of these riders? Uh, we, uh, if we couldn't, we would just sort of give up and move on to, uh, to other mischief. Uh, we always took the riders seriously, and they were routine. They happened all the time. If all of these had been rolled up into one annual crisis, where Ronald Reagan could have unrolled his national rhetorical skills uh, in competition with a few much less known salons on Capitol Hill, that would have been dandy for us. Wouldn't have been very good for the Congress. <laughs> Reforming uh, the spending process will require reconstruction of a strong, specialized policy hierarchy where the committee chairmen have strong powers unto themselves and are no longer the handmaidens of the party leadership. It will require relearning the arts of actual legislating, the arts of collective choice, where we have to come to a decision amongst ourselves uh, in compromise with people sometimes of very different uh, and conflicting uh, views. Uh, the third step, and then I'll wind up, uh, is to undelegate uh, the lawmaking power from the regulatory agencies. This is a problem not so much of culture as of sheer capacity. Uh, because Congress, by delegation, has created a lawmaking machinery capable of cranking out law at a volume vastly beyond what could be done uh, by a bicameral uh, legislature consisting of uh, nested committees with all sorts of cumbersome procedures uh, thrown in for good measure uh, by the Constitution itself. Uh, the most direct proposal is a Republican idea uh, that has floated uh, for the last couple of years and passed uh, the, the Republican House twice uh, called RAINS, R-E-I-N-S. Uh, the bill would say that major regulations of the executive branch could not uh, take effect until they were approved by both houses of Congress and signed by the president, which would be a foregone conclusion, it's a real bill, uh, and would enjoy uh, 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 privileges, fast-track privileges, to come to an up or down vote of uh, each of the two uh, chambers without going to the committee process, such as we do with uh, trade agreements and uh, base, the base closing uh, uh, exercises. Uh, that would mean that major regulations would simply be legislative proposals. It would, it's very dramatic because it takes the uh, slow-moving, 
complicated legislative process, and it just plunks it right into the middle of this uh, high-volume regulatory machine that we have uh, built. It is undelegation in the extreme. A lot of people are very much for it. It's going to be an interesting thing to see. It was one thing when it was a sort of an anti-Obama measure. Uh, now that uh, Congress could actually pass such a thing, uh, uh, we'll see if they really want to do it. Uh, it would mean uh, 10, 20, maybe more major pieces of highly complicated legislation added automatically to the legislative calendar every year and arriving with privileges at a time and place of the President's choosing. We'll see if they want to do that. Uh, the Congress will certainly try to displace uh, some uh, regulatory decisions under Obamacare, uh, the EPA's greenhouse gas initiatives, other things where Republican feelings uh, run high. Uh, it's not going to be easy to, I mean, those things will not, be, uh, will not be signed by the President unless he finds himself in a fix after the Supreme Court uh, decision on the federal uh, health, uh, uh, health uh, the, the subsidies to the federal uh, health ex insurance exchanges uh, in the uh, summer. My own idea is for some confidence-building exercises uh, for Congress to get back in uh, the game of actually making decisions collective choice, legislation in these areas. Uh, and I proposed uh, in my article two little ideas uh, that would have a good chance of getting a lot of Democratic votes and a good chance that the President would sign. Uh, one would be to legislate high, very high capital standards for large banks and other large uh, financial institutions, uh, ousting the extremely uh, timid uh, ideas for enhanced capital standards being uh, floated by the, uh, the Fed uh, and, uh, and other agencies, creating the very best bailout protection uh, we could have in the future. It would mean that the equity holders, not the taxpayers, were standing behind uh, uh, financial risks. Uh, uh, Senator uh, uh, Brown of Ohio, a liberal Democrat, and Senator uh, Vitter of uh, Louisiana, a conservative Republican, have backed just such a bill. Uh, the second is to free uh, these amazing new innovations in personal health uh, information, uh, such as uh, smartphone monitoring apps and uh, uh, personal genetic uh, profiling uh, techniques, uh, such as those of 23andMe, from FDA pre-marketing controls. Senator uh, Deb Fisher of uh, Nebraska, Republican, uh, Senator Angus King of Maine, independent, that means Democrat, he, he uh, caucuses with the Democrats, have introduced a pretty good, good piece of legislation along those lines. I have a particularly colorful phrase that I'm proud of in my article. I said, if these acts were to pass and actually take power away from the regulators in these two areas, uh, they, would be, they would be great victories for bipartisan, smart populism over the forces of uh, faux expertise and crony capitalism. How do you like that? Um, so, so I'm for pursuing opportunities here uh, to uh, uh, take lawmaking right back to, uh, to Congress. Uh, I think uh, that we should be prepared that Congress, in thinking about the balance of powers, should be prepared for some surprises in the next two years. I think that this conventional media idea uh, that uh, uh, the president is a late-termer, a lame duck, he's very unpopular, he'll try to pursue some foreign policy initiatives, that's what presidents do in the end game. 
but not much else. I think that may be incorrect. <laughs> uh, he's, he's a man of strong uh, uh, ideological, systematic views. He's very smart. Uh, he's intensely uh, determined. And if you look at the things he's done, such as in immigration and other areas, uh, it's as if he came to Washington uh, with a list of about 10 things that he told us about during the campaign in 2008. And he's determined to get them done. And he doesn't actually have to be popular to get them done. He can just get them done given the powers that the executive branch uh, has, uh, has accumulated. Let me, I want to give an idea that everybody's going to think is unbelievably fanciful. <clears throat> Consider the idea uh, that President Obama has uh, advanced it several times since the beginning of his uh, national uh, career and most recently in an amazing uh, statement he released uh, uh, what, uh, shortly after, I think it was shortly after the election. In any event, it was in the next uh, last uh, uh, month, month or so. And that is that the Internet ought to be converted into a national public utility under comprehensive controls over price, entry, terms of service, and in particular, this is called net neutrality, uh, that service providers should be converted into common carriers who must take all comers at the same price regardless of the different uh, prices uh, and values of the services uh, that are being provided. And essentially to treat the internet the way we treated railroads and airlines in previous epochs. It's, it's an unbelievably primitive retrograde uh, idea. Uh, but it's got, it's got some support in the faculty lounges in the law schools around the country and some economics department. It's got some support in the business models of some uh, big firms. Uh, and uh, the president is deeply attached uh, to this idea. Moreover, he says he can't do it by himself. It's up to the FCC. Well, that's exactly what he told us several times about immigration policy before he just came out and announced, well, I'm going to do it myself. Could the president uh, make the internet a national, publicly reg regulated utility all by himself? I think that he could. First of all, the electromagnetic spectrum, which is the key ski scarce resource in the internet, is something that is, uh, by declaration, owned by the federal government, has been ever since uh, uh, Herbert Hoover said so, said so in the 1920s. Uh, most of that spectrum is allocated by the FCC, but the government uh, could take that allocation uh, back in a way I'm going to tell you in a second. And in any event, the executive agencies, defense, commerce, others, they own huge amounts of spectrum uh, that they do not use themselves uh, that can provide uh, enormous bait for the enterprise uh, I'm, I have in mind. Uh, moreover, the government itself provides many things directly, like uh, geostationary positioning systems for our Apple and uh, GMAP uh, devices on our phones. Uh, that actually is based upon a government uh, enterprise. Uh, there's this, the Democratic Party. Uh, it has a sort of a proprietary feeling about the Internet. It has from the beginning. Al Gore told us that he came up with the idea to begin with. Uh, uh, many, many people in the party uh, believe that it was uh, singularly responsible for, for uh, the president's uh, 2008 uh, eight, uh, victory. Uh, most of all, uh, the executive branch is now able to act unilaterally with enormous uh, uh, power uh, and lack of any kind of apologetics in doing things that would have been considered impossible uh, in the past. I have in mind 
the, uh, uh, the uh, administration's position in the, quote, managed bankruptcies of General Motors and Chrysler, uh, where it simply rearranged what had been the traditional uh, legal uh, rules of, uh, of priority. Uh, in the uh, BP oil spill, uh, where it simply called up, somebody from the White House called up BP and said, please send us $20 billion immediately. We're going to use it to administer our own uh, compensation fund. Uh, something that, if you'd said it before, can a president just do this? People have said, no, you can't do that. But they just did it, and it was a popular cause, uh, and, uh, and it worked. Uh, most recently, uh, these amazing, uh, the amazing developments in these uh, uh, so-called uh, inversion uh, international mergers, where there were some very solid, financially sensible uh, mergers that had been prepared to, prepared, agreed by the boards, and people at the White House got on the phone with some of the directors and had some candid conversations, and the boards immediately announced that they were abandoning uh, these initiatives to everybody's uh, amazement. If the White House called together uh, the major Internet service providers, uh, the major uh, firms uh, that provide uh, uh, major Internet matters, uh, and forged uh, an agreement uh, for net neutrality uh, and public utility controls uh, that everybody was going to agree to, uh, and everybody kind of understood that they had to because there were tax and other pieces of business they had before the executive branch that would, uh, t would be taken into account. And it was taken over to the FCC for, uh, uh, for a little uh, rubber stamp approval in the beginning of a program. Uh, and oh, by the way, nobody appeals. We want to keep the judges out of this. I think it could be accomplished. Now, I don't want, I don't want people to think I'm paranoid. This is not a uh, prediction. I want to use this idea simply to uh, dramatize the astounding amount of discretionary power that has accumulated in the executive branch and how it could be used uh, for uh, astounding purposes uh, in the next two years. A last word. I am not unmindful uh, that Congress has many vices of its own. A Republican Congress reconstituted along the lines I have uh, sketched out would without doubt be the source of uh, some uh, excessive and uh, horribly wasteful spending, uh, tax and regulatory provisions uh, that benefit narrow groups at the expense of the public. Uh, those are part of a larger policy and uh, institutional problem we have in our politics. But the immediate problem is that our Constitution depends on robust competition among the three branches, and in particular between the two political branches, to keep federal power relatively constrained, under control, uh, and honest between elections, when most of us are not uh, paying attention, and to police the inevitable corruptions of concentrated power. The Republicans have many big and worthy policy uh, reforms uh, that they wish to pursue. Uh, and uh, uh, and uh, many of us uh, feel uh, very strongly about them and hope that they do well. Uh, but my point is that even as they do that, it has fallen to them uh, to do something larger, and that is to restore some badly needed constitutional balance. Thank you. I'm ready. When I um, first read Chris's article, uh, I immediately said, this is an article that deserves to be a panel uh, discussion at Hudson. It needs to be 
something that we inter interject deep into the debate about the uh, role of Congress, past, present, and future. Uh, and I did this for two reasons. Uh, one, out of a measure of my respect for my colleague and friend, uh, Chris DeMoot. The second reason, because it was a sneaky way to get to meet Don Nichols. <laughs> uh, Don Nichols, to me, I will always think of him as the uh, sunny, sane face <laughs> of the Republican Senate during those divisive years of the uh, Clinton second term, uh, of someone who always seemed to have the, uh, the right thing to say, who always seemed to be, on the one hand, supporting causes and issues that I, as a avowed conservative, supported, but at the same time did it in ways that were that no liberal could accuse as being threatening or as being uh, dangerous to the mean-spirited or dangerous to the public good. And uh, so I began to sort of wonder, is it really possible that here in Washington there could be someone who is so good and, and sane and, uh, and, and intelligent and uh, w with the kind of integrity that he seems to have. And everybody that I've talked to has said, yes, that's Don Nichols. Um, a little biographical information for you. And in fact, the more you read his biography, the more uh, uh, you're going to like him. Uh, and in particularly in my case. Like me, he's a small town guy, grew up in uh, Paco City, Ponca City, Oklahoma. Like me, he attended public schools. Um, to pay for his education at Oklahoma State University, he and his wife uh, ran a professional dry cleaning service. In, in, Janitorial. Janitorial service. Do you still have that business? No. No, you don't. Okay. Thank goodness. Uh, okay. Um, and then in 1978, uh, Don Nichols ran for the Oklahoma State Senate two year and won. Two years later, uh, he ran for the United States Senate and was elected as the uh, uh, youngest Republican ever elected to the United States Senate. In his years in the Senate, uh, he assumed a series of leadership posts, which I won't summarize for you here, uh, but he certainly was part of the inner circle in shaping in the future direction of the uh, of what a Republican Senate should look like, the kinds of issues to take up, the ways in which to build the kind of esprit de corps that will be necessary for a Republican Senate and a Republican Congress that comes up in, the, uh, uh, in January. And for that reason, I think it's extremely important uh, to have uh, Don Nichols here as part of our commentating on the issue of the future of the Congress and what takes place. As you may know, uh, Congressman Nichols is now retired from the Senate. His place was taken by Tom Coburn, who also seems to me uh, as being a model of the kind of legislator that we would want, the kind of senator we want in the future. Uh, and I just want to tell you that uh, I have enormous respect for, for Tom Coburn, um, but Don Nichols is the original coin. <laughs> Uh, and so uh, with that, I want to want you to welcome, please, uh, uh, Senator Don Nichols. I'll just make a few comments and then I'll join you on that. One, I want to compliment Chris for his outstanding speech and, and, 
and say I, I share many of the concerns that, that he uh, touched on. Uh, as, as was mentioned, I came into town as a senator in 1980. Uh, I will say things have changed a lot. Leadership in the Senate, for example, just flipped. It's flipped seven times since I've been in town. And it's going to flip again. And it's not all that unhealthy when it does change. Chris talked about the natural tensions, or there should be some tension between the legislative branch and the executive branch, and frankly, the judicial branch. I, I believe very strongly in that, and I was in the Senate for 24 years. I always felt like it was part of my job, since I was in leadership for most of that time, to protect the legislative branch. Protect it from the executive branch if they were legislating, and, and even if the judicial branch if they were in the legislative business, which they've done on occasion. But the real problem in the last several years, I think, with, the, uh, with President Obama's administration is I think there's a real disrespect or a lack of respect for Congress. I, I know he served in the Senate for two years. He came in just as I was, just as I retired, voluntarily, I might add. And, uh, and, and I complimented him. And all members, all members of Congress, all members of the House, the Senate, and the President, when they are sworn in, they, they take an oath to uphold the Constitution. And I am absolutely flabbergasted at some of the comments and some of the statements that our President, who, who sometimes says he's a constitutional scholar, makes in, in just grossly violating the Constitution. Grossly. Constitution, Article 1 of the Constitution says basically Congress shall make all laws. All legislative powers are herein granted to the House and the Senate. All legislative powers. The only exception to that is, is in the Tenth Amendment, which basically gives all other legislative powers to the states and to the people. But all legislative powers on the federal side are delegated to the House and to the Senate. And, and then reserved to the states and to the people. It doesn't say, Mr. President, you don't like uh, the fact that Congress hasn't legislated on, on immigration. You go ahead and do it anyway, and then maybe hope that Congress is going to address it, and if you're happy with it, you can sign it, and it will supersede the law that you just implemented. That, that was his statement not long ago, right after the election. Interesting, he made that statement after the election. But, but I thought, wow, did he just say that? Did he really just say, I'm going to pass a law, and I know it should be done by Congress, and frankly, for the last two or three years, he said it should be done by Congress when people were telling him, hey, we want you to do more on immigration. He said, I'm not king. I can't do it by, I, I, I have to go, the Congress has to act. He was right in saying that, and he said it several times. And then right after the election, he said, well, I'm going to do it full speed ahead, and I want Congress, I challenge Congress to supersede what I just did. Whoa! Doesn't say that. It doesn't say it when it comes to a health care bill. Oh, here's the law that Congress passed. Pretty unusual circumstances the way they passed it, but I won't comment on that now. But, okay, Congress passed the law. Whoops, some of it is unpopular, and some of it is going to come up before the election, so I'm just going to suspend the individual mandate. Not going to enforce it. I hate to say it, but he's supposed to faithfully execute the laws. It doesn't say suspend those that he doesn't like, don't have to enforce the ones that really maybe are uncomfortable, that 
in this case, he is totally responsible for, because it might have political repercussions. And, and, and you could just go on and on. It, you know, oh, well, you mentioned the Consumer Finance uh, Protection Board, CFPB. Oh, unbelievable delegated powers to one individual, more or less made a czar, subject to Senate confirmation. He couldn't get Senate confirmation. He did a recess appointment. And, and, and this individual, the way Congress passed this law, you talk about Congress delegating powers. Congress passed a law that says, well, yeah, they can get a percentage of the revenues that come from the Fed, and it's, it basically boils down to several hundred millions of dollars a year not subject to congressional appropriation. So no oversight, no board, no commission, in this case, didn't even have the confirmation process. Again, just sticking the finger in the eye, I think, of the Senate. His NLRB uh, recess appointments on individuals that he couldn't get through the Senate that were actually defeated in the Senate were not going to be confirmed, so he did a recess appointment. In this case, the courts said, whoa, you, you exceeded your, your authority. Then he came back, was able to get him in because uh, Senator Reid changed the rules of the Senate. Wow. I mean, I, I, I think there is a constitutional crisis in the fact that the president just is really disregarding the Constitution as it's written and, and is trying to implement his policies as if he is a czar or a king. And, and there's a real reason why our forefathers had the wisdom to separate the powers and to have a balance of powers, to have the checks and balances. And, and what happened after President Obama was elected, he ended up getting 59 votes in the Senate and then 60. And, and uh, all of a sudden, he could get almost anything through. And I almost think, God bless him, but Senator Byrd was one of the champions in the Senate who would defend the legislative powers or balance of powers, and, and it was in his later years, and I was gone. And, and anyway, they were able to railroad it through. And they did railroad it through. Passed, I think, on December 24th or something in, in the first year. Wow. Wow. It, it, it really bothers me. And, and, and I, I hope and pray. I, let me just, I want to be positive. There is new leadership in town. And, and with Senator McConnell as the new majority leader beginning in January, he is going to return to regular order. One of the things that Chris was advocating is that Congress to do its job. For whatever reason, with, with the Democrat leadership in the Senate for the last six years, and I, I want to separate the two, the House basically did its job. They passed a budget bill every year. They passed most of the appropriation bills every year. They didn't pass in the Senate. When Chris talked about the Senate's doing continuing resolutions, the Senate last night passed, well, last night, a couple of days ago, passed an appropriation bill that had most of the appropriation. That's the first time the Senate has actually acted on an appropriation bill in years. I think for five years they're on a continuing resolution. This bill passed, and yes, the appropriators, House and Senate, they worked out most all the bills, but they didn't have any of the bills in the Senate on Senate floor subject to amendment. The thing I'm saying is good news is I know Senator McConnell, and I know his new chief of policy is, you worked for me for the last 27 years, Hayes Marshall. He's going to do a fantastic job. They're going to revert to regular order. They're going to have appropriation bills. They're going to have a budget. I was on the budget committee for 24 years. Every year, we tried to do a budget. We didn't always get them done, but we always had one on the floor. We always marked it up, and we usually had hundreds of votes in the process of passing a budget. For the last six years, 
President Obama's first year when he had this supermajority did get it through and he used that to pass, frankly, uh, Obamacare and a trillion dollar stimulus program. The, since then, he didn't have a budget, except for one year the House said, uh, you don't get paid if you don't do a budget, so the Senate did, did pass a budget, but it was not designed to do anything, but it, it wasn't designed to actually come up with a budget. Well, now they're going to come up with a budget, and it is not easy. I was budget chairman for a couple of years, but I was on that committee, and if you do a budget, you're doing the largest budget in the world. And you're dealing with everything. And in the Senate, the way the rules are, you, you have unlimited opportunity to amend it. So anybody, Senator Sanders can say, I want less money for defense and I want more money for education. You have unlimited number of those amendments. And so you can easily see it is not an easy process. But it's a healthy process. I will guarantee, I, I will bet anything in the next year the Senate will have more votes in 2015 than they've had in the last six years combined. They're going to have lots of votes. They're going to have lots of opportunities to do some good, to do some bad, to have some mischief, but they're going to be working. And I bet you it's, it may not be pretty. I should forewarn you on that. <laughs> Legislative process sometimes is not pretty. But it will be working. They will do a budget. They will have appropriation bills. They'll have lots of opportunities to make amendments, whether they'll be successful. This idea of, well, okay, the... Republicans really don't like what the president, he's trying to, to pass a law on immigration, so how do you stop that? Oh, we find out they already have the money coming in automatically. Well, can they change that? That's going to be hard because he might veto it. So you might have a lot of things like that and where Congress is trying to, to re, reassert basically congressional authority. You all know you have enormous budget in the trillions of dollars, but Congress only appropriates about 30% of it. The rest of it's kind of on automatic pilot through entitlements and so on. So Congress can shape those. It can control them. It can pass laws to change them, but it's not easy. And this president may veto those. If somebody says, I think we should have a, a reasonable cost of living adjustment, not one that's overinflated. It can save a lot of money. It can help save Social Security. It's something that everybody that's studied anything knows it should be done. But can it happen? Uh, maybe not, because Senator Reid said, over my body, we're not going to do it. So you could have some big things like that. It might be very healthy, be very positive. If it can get done, can it get past the Senate? Can it get past the White House? Who knows the next couple of years? So there's going to be lots of tension, but that's okay. That's healthy. That's part of the process. And, and so I'm actually kind of excited. I think you're going to see a return to the uh, legislative branch, more or less standing up to the executive branch, hopefully to reclaim some of the authority and the powers that have been granted, but mainly to push back from uh, a White House right now that is trying to usurp their powers well beyond what the Constitution allows. And, and so it's going to be a very interesting, very, very, I start to say hotly contested, but, it, but this is part of the process. And, and I think it's going to be kind of fun to... Uh, to observe in the next couple of years. And, and hopefully, prayerfully, in the long term, we will return to a real, what I would call, constitutionally balanced uh, basis of government between three branches of, of, of government. So anyway, thank you for letting me participate. Thank you. Thank you. Um, as moderator, I get to claim privilege to ask the first questions. First one for Chris, second one for Senator Nichols. Sure. Uh, my question for Chris is this. Uh, in your uh, list, your agenda, 
for what the new Congress must do as part of its clawing back its powers and its role, constitutional role. The one piece of uh, legislation that for the Obama administration that's been a major source of controversy here and what's taken place is Obamacare, and yet you didn't mention it. Explain yourself. <laughs> for uh, uh, I, in Obamacare, the policy action has uh, basically moved to the courts and to the states uh, for the, for the time being. Uh, the uh, last week, uh, the Congress did something that uh, nobody thought possible. It actually revised, substantially revised two provisions of Dodd-Frank. That was thought to be inviolable. Uh, that was not, but that was not quite the purely partisan enactment that Obamacare was. Uh, and uh, I think it still is the case that the administration would um, veto any effort to change Obamacare. Uh, however, there are several uh, strong constitutional challenges, uh, including in particular the one coming out of the uh, coming out of the D.C. Circuit and uh, Virginia cases and others uh, regarding the provision of tax subsidies uh, to uh, the, the federal as opposed to state exchanges. Uh, that will be decided by the Supreme Court uh, by the middle of the year. Uh, there, I think it's, it's fair to say that there's a significant chance uh, that that act will have, uh, be held to have been beyond uh, their statutory authorities. It's uh, a and, pretty potent challenge and, and, is what you're and, saying. And if so, uh, what Senator Nichols is a health care expert, so I, 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 I'm hesitant to say too much here. Uh, but, I, but I believe that if, that if the decision went that way, uh, the administration would be in uh, something of a fix, and it would, it would really need uh, some legislation, uh, which would open things up uh, a little bit. Uh, Obamacare also requires a lot of cooperation from the, uh, the states. Uh, and uh, we have a new sectionalism in our politics now. We, uh, we used to have the South uh, versus the rest of the country. Uh, that's long gone. Uh, but we now have the uh, heartland uh, growing uh, and generally conservative states uh, versus the uh, coastal, generally liberal, uh, generally not growing uh, states. Uh, and it's a pretty sharp sectionalism that is making this sort of cooperation uh, difficult. Uh, so we have these two other constitutional checks, the courts and the states. And I think there, uh, Congress has been disabled by the fact that the, the Senate was democratic. Uh, it's still going to be somewhat disabled because it's, a change is going to require the president's signature. But we have these other two uh, backstops. And I think that what, whatever Congress may do, uh, will, if it can do anything effective, uh, the administration first needs to need its help. And uh, a sequence of state decisions or uh, uh, court decisions could be the antecedent to that. You want to comment Senator? on that? Please? Well, this part of this is because legislative process wasn't followed. Um, this is the yeah. biggest change, frankly, in entitlements uh, since the creation of, of Medicare and Social Security. And yet the Senate, world's most liberty body, uh, they did have some votes on it in the Finance Committee, but they didn't have votes on it in the Senate. Never had a vote, up and down vote, on the bill on medical device tax, on individual mandate, on employer mandate, 
You can keep your health care plan if you like it, uh, grandfathering all the health care plans, which President Obama campaigned on. President Obama said he, he wasn't for an individual mandate that he insists is now part of the bill. You know, lots of those. They never had a vote. Never had a vote in the U.S. Senate. Think of that. Never had a vote in the last six years. Never had a vote. And that's, I think, really the reason why Senator Reid kind of blocked this whole Senate because he knew, hey, if I ever open up the amendment process, we're going to get all these tough votes. And, and, and I'm not sure, you know, Obamacare passed by one vote, and now you, you see Senator Harkin has come out and said, oh, yeah, we made some mistakes, you know, and, and others. Um, so there's going to be lots of votes. There's going to be lots of votes. And I think voting is a healthy process. I, I, I always told my colleagues, hey, if you're afraid to vote, don't, don't, why are you in the Senate? I mean, don't run for the House and the Senate if you can't take tough votes. And, and uh, uh, but, you know, they, they were able to pass it by one vote and late at night, right before Christmas. And it's very, a lot of it's been very indefensible. And, and so he's afraid it was going to, well, Chris is exactly right. This court decision is kind of the lever. This is, this is over, I think, well over half the, individuals in the country as far as uh, will they be entitled to subsidies. Statute reads fairly clearly. You know, they have to come from state exchanges, not from federal exchange. So, but I, but I don't know what's going to happen because uh, Justice Roberts was pretty creative in his original ruling, which kind of surprised me because I, I, I worked hard to get him confirmed before he was confirmed. I, and, and, uh, uh, but it, but anyway, I, I think this is a big deal, and and if the Obama administration loses, they will have to come to Congress and say help, um, and and so there will be a major rewrite if, if that, happens. that happens. If not, you may see Congress pick off pieces of it. You know, medical device tax. You might have a grandfather. You might have the administration said, oh, we can just uh, defer the the mandates. We'll defer them till past the next election. Well. Congress could pass a deferring uh, of the mandates. They're, the mandates are going to hit individuals uh, this next couple of months. Um, and, and most people, oh, that's just a couple hundred dollars. It's 2% of your payroll. So if you're making $100,000, that's $2,000 penalty. It's not insignificant. And, uh, and, and so, but the president, uh, by executive action, suspended that part of the law until after the election. Well, Congress can pass a law to indefinitely suspend it or to suspend it or to repeal it. I mean, Congress is going to have that chance. The president can veto it. It takes two-thirds to override the veto. So, you know, you're going to have a lot of that going on, and, and my guess is Congress will make an effort to totally repeal it. I don't know if that gets through the Senate or not. The president will veto it, and then they will probably come back and make some more um, uh, discreet uh, pieces of it, uh, probably starting with medical device tax because it does appear the votes might be there to to uh, actually pass that. But I, I would expect you'll see a lot of votes on Obamacare because they've never voted on it in the Senate. Also interesting, uh, the Senate, when it did pass, it had 60 votes. Only 30 members of the Senate who voted for it originally are still in the Senate. Hmm. So there's been a big turnover, and, and a whole lot of those have been elected in the, in the meantime have not become the biggest proponents. So It's not their legacy. Anymore. It's not their legacy. They don't have to defend it. Those that did defend it... Um, Many became uh, former senators. Now, my question now for Senator Nichols, and that is this is kind of a crystal ball question uh, on two issues that are dear to me. Uh, one is how the new Congress, the new Senate, will act on Keystone Pipeline. 
and the other one is how they will handle the issue about lifting the oil export ban okay. and what the, what the repercussions there will be. Well, too, on Keystone, uh, Leader McConnell has already announced that that's going to be top of the list. Um, you, you may remember that Perry Reid wouldn't allow the Senate to vote on it for years um, in a way that it might have a chance to get to the President's desk. He did, um, after the election, before the special election, uh, I say special election, the runoff election in Louisiana, which was just last uh, December the 5th or 6th. And so Mary Lou Landrieu did have it, um, and uh, um, so he was able to give her vote. I'm sure that Senator McConnell will get a similar vote up um, probably early next year. I would expect that it would pass with a good margin, question whether it will pass with the necessary votes, or the president would sign it. Uh, it makes every kind of sense to do it. I mean, it's cheaper, it's safer, it's more environmentally sound to transport by by pipe than it is by rail. Canadians going to move it by rail. I'm on a board of a of Valero, biggest refiner in the, in the country, and we move a lot of oil by pipe, and we move a lot of oil by by train. It's going to move one way or the other, and and I, this is one argument that nobody makes. I I find it very troubling that we keep sticking our finger in the eye of, of one of our best allies in, in Canada. Totally agree. I, I totally agree. The Canadians have been with us on everything, and this is part of our. I, I just don't even think it's a close call, and even the State Department has pretty much said as, said as much. Um, but the President, I think, is – I even said some time ago, I said if he doesn't move on Keystone, he's bound to lose the Senate because you had Montana, North Dakota, Colorado, Arkansas, Louisiana, all those states were, were directly impacted on, on Keystone. He lost every one of those states. Um, so I, I kind of think – anyway, I – I think Congress will pass it whether or not they can get the votes or have some leverage with the President. Um, you know, it's one thing to pass it freestanding, it's another thing to have it connected to something the President wants or needs. And, and a lot of times you uh, you marry legislation to with other items. Yep. And, and so that's, that's part of the process. Okay. And oil export, just real briefly? Oil export, uh, I think, makes economic sense. Um, Congress is has looked at it a little bit. Uh, uh, Senator Murkowski is chairman of the Energy Committee. She's in favor of it. Uh, I would expect that the votes would be there in, in the House and Senate to do it. There's some people opposing to it. The oil industry is going through a lot of turmoil now with the price of oil declining about 50 percent in the last six months. And, and so it's, that's, that's the biggest shock wave. And frankly, that has more waves on it than most people have been able to see. The waves are, are permeating all the way into Russia and to Middle Eastern countries and so on. It, it, it's a very significant thing. The, the positive thing, and people need to realize this, America, to some extent, because of, of, of the fracking revolution and because of the enormous expansion of, of oil production in the Bakken and, and Eagleford and, uh, and other shell plays in the United States, has, has, is on the verge of breaking the back of OPEC for the first time since the early 70s. And many of you will remember that there were oil lines in, in 71 and 73. We had shortages. You had oil that was going from $8 to $40. It was enormous negative repercussions on, on the U.S. economy. Uh, OPEC had us 
kind of by the throat at that time. We end up importing more and more and more. Now we're importing less and less and less. We're going to be totally independent uh, of imports, certainly if you include Canada and Mexico. And, and, and so that, to me, is very exciting. And, and the, the leverage that OPEC has had over us is, is, is disappearing. And, and also Russia's um, currency opportunities are, are, are he, he's being crushed right now. And, and that, so this is going to have significant, and, and it's frankly, it's because the U.S. exploration that really began by independent oil companies, and, and uh, it, it's just remarkable. And it also gives us economic advantages for manufacturing natural gas. We're going to have lower natural gas prices than the rest of the world for, for some time. And uh, as you said, that oil shock in 1973 had a, a huge damaging impact on the economy. It also had a huge dam damaging impact on the American psyche. Sure. And I think that we're on the verge now of really, of really wiping away that legacy. Should we open up the debate for questions? Please. Uh, when, you, when you do, uh, when the microphone comes to you to speak, if you could just identify yourself and whatever affiliation you care to disclose. Right here, blue, up in the front. Blue shirt first, and then we'll go to the next. Uh, thank you. I'm Dave Rabinowitz. I'm retired. And uh, it seems to me it wasn't that long ago that the big complaints in D.C. was about congressional earmarks and Congress trying to micromanage spending. And now the current continuing resolution that was just passed is well over a thousand pages and has a whole bunch of provisions that has absolutely nothing to do with spending, most of which we haven't even learned about yet. It seems to me that Congress hasn't given up its uh, powers, and uh, it seems to me that when people are unhappy with the way, th with what's being done, they find some part of the process to complain about rather than complaining about what's being done. I, I, I would just say you, you make uh, uh, several valid points. The good news is it's going to change. Uh, instead of having one bill that didn't ever go through the Senate, so you never had one senator able to offer any amendments on that bill, you're now going to have 12 appropriation bills. I remember the old days when we passed them. We would pass them. I said it's not pretty. Uh, you'd probably work on the bill all week, and you'd probably do a handful of amendments Monday, Tuesday, maybe more on Wednesday, a lot on Thursday. And usually we'd say, all right, we're going to go home when we pass the bill. And so everybody's got their amendments. And this will shock you, but Harry Reid and I did this. I was whip, and he was whip. And we passed most of the appropriation bills, and this is frankly from 2004 back for several years. We would, all right, who's got a list of amendments? We'd get those amendments, and by Thursday night late, about 9 o'clock, those amendments start falling off, and about 1 o'clock, everybody said, enough, let's go home. But people had a chance to offer their amendments, and they had a chance to have exposure. And, and frankly, if you didn't like it, you'd try and find the weak parts in the bill. You would expose it if you find something that really doesn't make sense. And, and so the amendment process is a healthy process, and it's an educational process, and it's, and it's time-consuming, so it gives people, okay, here's the bill. Here's the bill for the Interior Department that funds every little park and everything in the country. They manage millions of acres. So there will be amendments on can you have oil and gas drilling here, can you do this, can you mine this. It, all those things are, to me, that's part of governing. And having that bill on the floor for a few days is a healthy process. So, so instead of, you know, at midnight or something, passing a bill that's this deep that no one can be totally aware of it, you'll have 
12 oper I say you, the committees and members of the Senate and the House, and frankly, the American people, because it's going to be debated and they'll have it and it's going to be available. You'll have it on the floor. People nowadays can, can go online, they can get a copy of it, they can email their member, what in the world is this? It's going to be a much more open process. Continuing resolution is not legislative process. Uh, and this is not complaining about process because you don't like the result. Uh, a, a, a continuing resolution uh, simply continues what was done the last year, but then it has lots of things that are thrown in. Uh, the appropriating committees, the budget, the budget committee, uh, uh, if you went back to uh, last, I guess it was uh, uh, September, they passed a continuing resolution through uh, December. The appropriators had no idea what was in it. They, didn't, they hadn't seen the bill. Uh, people voted for it without knowing anything that was in it. The only thing that is known is that it has to pass. That's the one thing that is known, it must pass. And uh, the result is that the uh, leadership is highly amenable uh, to particular earmarks, so a lot of things do get uh, thrown in it. A lot of things get thrown into appropriations, but the appropriation is actually a, a deliberative process, collective choice. As, uh, as Don Nichols says, you take lots of votes. Continuing resolution, there's just one vote. Uh, and uh, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but just so you understand, it's done in the majority leader's office. Uh, it's tightly controlled. Uh, it is, it's a game, usually there's a game of chicken going on with the executive branch. It's the whole government of the United States, absent all of these uh, independently financed agencies. Uh, it has to pass, and a lot of things get thrown in. So it's, it's very different from uh, traditional legislation. Traditional legislation, it's not, you know, sometimes it's not that pretty, and you need to have a little vigorous to, uh, to pass an appropriations bill, but it's done at a smaller scale. There's more voting, there's more participation, and the people that, are, that are, have worked their way up, uh, the committee structure, they're actually participating, rather than just, you're a Republican, you're a Democrat, you're going to vote for it, you're going to vote against it, unless we can make a few little tweaks by, you know, helping with a couple things that you care about. Well, the, the So I think it's fundamentally different. Yeah, the, the difference, too, if you're doing a continuing res resolution is, is, one, it's admitting you failed. You didn't pass all your appropriation bills. You're supposed to pass all the appropriation yeah. bills by the rules by, by the end of September. And, and also, because it's 12, they're a lot more digestible. You can handle 12 individual bills <laughs> instead of, oh, we got 1.1 trillion. That's a lot to swallow. That, that, that's, that's hard to get your hands on it, even if you've been doing it for a while. So, so it's just it, it, a whole lot of the solution to the problems, legislative problems, in my opinion, can be summed up as, as, as return to regular order. And regular order basically means following the law. It means doing the budget. Interesting, the administration has, as part of this, they are supposed to introduce their budget in, in I think, middle of January, no later than February 1. They've been late every year, usually by a month or so. Congress is supposed to pass it by April 15th. I, I actually <laughs> passed one on, on time, and that's the last time that's happened. That was in 2003 yeah. or 2004. Right. Uh, that, but that's that, not easy. That budget, by the way, is in the uh, Museum of Congressional History <laughs> on display. There. But is is not easy. But 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 that sets the parameters. If you have both houses pass it, then that tells the House appropriators, okay, here's how much money you have. They allocate amongst their committees. And then they're ready to start marking up their bills. 
that is regular order, and I, and I know that all the principal players are saying we're going to do that. Interesting, I've had a lot of Democrats, new Democrats in the Senate, come up to me and say, we want the Senate to work. What can we do? And I tell them regular <laughs> order. And a lot of them are very frustrated. Some of them feel like even that cost them control of the Senate because they weren't able to, to separate themselves from the president. Because they never voted, their voting record was 98% in line with President Obama, who's not very popular. So, you know, if they would have had appropriations and lots of votes, they could have said, hey, wait a minute, on that health care bill, I didn't support that individual mandate, or I didn't support that medical device tax, or I didn't support, uh, I, I wanted to make sure you could keep your health care plan. If you liked it, you could keep it. We were promised that. Well, that disappeared when the bill was enacted. If they would have had a chance to vote on it, they might have been able to give themselves some protection and, and maybe passed a better bill and maybe not be, be so beat up during election time because the president was an anchor around most of the senators that lost. Uh, you know, he wasn't out campaigning in, in Louisiana and Colorado and so on for a, a lot of the close Senate races. And, and uh, so it, more votes, I think. I always told people, don't be afraid to vote. It's, it's, it's a healthy process. And, and your opponents are always going to have plenty of ammo. I mean, you're going to cast lots of votes, and most votes, you could you could run a you could run a good ad against anybody on almost any issue. And if they're any good, they're going to have to be able to report. But that should be okay. Yeah. Next. Well, I'm sorry, the gentleman with the sunglasses. Then we'll come down front. Uh, yes, that's you. That's you. Um, they're actually photo grays. Um, <laughs> Senator, you hit on two things. I'm sorry, we didn't catch the name. I'm, oh, uh, I'm Dino Drudy. I'm on the board of the, of the advisors of the Federation for American Immigration Reform. Okay. Um, so I'm going to get to an immigration question. I'm not speaking for the organization. Uh, you hit on two things, Senator. One, you mentioned Robert Byrd. And the other thing that you mentioned is how the process works through regular order. Robert Byrd was a great defender of the Senate as an institution and was not afraid to stand up to the executive, even the executive of his own party. And at, at the end, and then he passed away, it seems as if there was nobody left in the Senate who was able or willing to do that. Um, Senator Levin stood up to Harry Reid on getting rid of the filibuster, but he was the only one, only Democrat. Why do you believe that solely a return to regular order will undo the damage that it appears that the Senate has done to itself and the Congress has done to itself to weaken itself via via the president? Do you believe that it's even possible for the Congress to restore the historic balance given the way that the Senate has caved into the, the President, almost Harry Reid, almost himself protecting the President at the expense of the power of the Senate? Well, I think, Let's answer that question. Sure. Uh, two or three things. An e excellent question. Uh, I think it can be restored, and I think return to regular order is 90% is of it. 
I think Senate rules are very important. Uh, I hope they go back to a 60-vote majority on, on confirmations. Just give you an example. That is a humongous transfer of power to, to the executive branch to go from, from, 50 to, uh, from 60 to 51. Humongous. Harry Reid ended up getting all those nominations. What does NLRB or, or EPA or any of those, if, you, if you're president and you are ultra-liberal left, and so you want to appoint uh, somebody at NLRB that happens to be, uh, you know, uh, on organized labor's payroll for the last 20 years and so on. Hmm. You know, you probably couldn't get him through a Republican Senate or, or even, even if the Democrats controlled with 55 or something, probably couldn't. So you're going to have to get somebody a little more mainstream. But, hey, if you've got 51 full speed ahead. So you can get, you can put in somebody really radical on, on the EPA or NLRB or so on because you can get your people in. And I always kind of figured that whoever won the election should be given great latitude on putting in their people and so on. But in some cases where you have this administration putting in activists and people who are really far to the left, uh, you know, a 60-vote threshold would have stopped that. And it would have stopped a bunch of nominees in the last uh, couple of days. So I think – I and, her, and interesting, you mentioned Robert Byrd. He and I both testified before the Rules Committee against changing the threshold from 60 to, to a majority. And uh, all these uh, – not all, but a whole bunch of new Democrat senators who have been in the Senate for a year or two or three, oh, we've got to change these rules. And I thought – you don't understand the institution. And frankly, having 60 makes the Senate be more bipartisan. So if you have 51, you have the majority, you can railroad anybody you want. You have to have 60. Very seldom does either side have 60. Democrats had it for about a year. That's all. And, and that's about it. For You'd have to go way, way back, uh, LBJ time, before anybody had over 60. So, so if you have to have 60, that means you have to reach out to the other party. So it makes you be more bipartisan, and it makes your nominees be maybe not quite so much on the fringe. And, and so, so I think that restoration of Rule 60, not just for uh, on nominations as well, would, would be a good thing, and regular order would do most all the difference. And, and I will tell you, this is interesting. People haven't picked this up. This election is going to do that, and it's going to be you're going to see the Senate functional. And part of your question, you said, well, Congress hasn't. And I, I always take it, and I love the Senate. I never served in the House. But to the, the House's plus, John Boehner, they have done regular order. And he has allowed committee chairmen, basically, to, to mark up their bills. He hasn't tried to impose. The Senate, just the other. We haven't had regular order. And in many cases, on really big bills, Harry Reid, or Democrat leadership, <laughs> took the bill away from the Finance Committee and said, we're going to rewrite it. That's what they did on Obamacare. Max Baucus actually marked up Obamacare, had a bipartisan vote coming out of the committee. Olympia Snow voted for it and, and had a lot of input anyway, lots of amendments, took that bill, said, we don't need, we've got 60. We don't need any Republicans, and, and basically rewrote the bill in the leader's office and then didn't allow any amendments on it. So no Republican voted for it, House or Senate. None of them had any input on it. Didn't get to, you know, if, if you get to amend it and you win, hey, you have little ownership. You know, you're, you're kind of invested in it. You help shape it. You don't get to have any input. You're, you're ticked. 
I, I wouldn't want to be in the Senate if I couldn't offer amendments. And in the last five years, they haven't, people haven't been able, you know, there was people that ran for election, for, for re-election this year, been in office in the Senate for six years, never offered an amendment on the floor of the Senate. Wow. I, I don't know how many hundreds of amendments I was involved in. It was in the hundreds, hundreds. And, and, and so I, I just I can't imagine being in the Senate and not having an opportunity to do amendments. Uh, it's, it's surreal and so abnormal, so out of normal. But that's going to change. And, and I, I, I will tell you right now, the Democrats are going to like it because they're going to have more votes that they get to offer than they ever had in the last six years. So it's going to be a big change. And I'll bet you you'll see some real positive things come out of it. I, I, I think you'll see a return to the camaraderie. The Senate has always had a special camaraderie, a special uh, uh, admiration and, and, and work that uh, goes well beyond partisanship. And, and, and a lot of that was just hasn't happened. I think it's going to restore. And I, and I hope and pray it does because it's, it's, it's a great place to, to serve and, and to work. And, and maybe some of you have worked in the Senate. Uh, it, it, it hopefully will have a real return to, I, I think, it's, it's better days. And, and I'm excited about that. I, sadly, we're going to have time for one more question. That will be the one up. Thank you very much. Michael Kutzig, formerly with the U.S. Department of Agriculture. I'm listening to what you're saying, and you began with the comments that in 1932, Franklin Roosevelt came to power, and since then, the executive has usurped the power of the congressional. And yet you spent the last hour attacking Obama, attacking Obama, attacking Obama. Is he the guilty party? What happened to the other 75 years when he was not in office? Is that when the Senate gave up its, its power, or the Congress gave up its power? I find this such a one-sided argument over here against the Obama administration. Granted, he's taking some of the powers and so on, but he can't be the only one who's changed things so radically in, in that period. And the second one, if I may just ask, ask the senator, of course, we saw the Franklin Roosevelt elected four times, and we put term limits on it. Why aren't there term limits on senators? Max Backus, who I had lunch with in uh, Beijing uh, a month ago, I happened to live there part of the year, served, I think, six terms in the Senate. You served four terms. Yeah. Why aren't there term limits on the Senate, perhaps two terms on the House, maybe five terms, and change the whole culture that you don't have these fiefdoms? Thank you very much. Uh, I could answer either of those. I'll answer the second one since it's directed to me. I, I personally would be a... You have three branches of government. Only the executive branch has limitation, that, and that was after FDR was elected four terms, so, so we limit the president to two terms. It would be fine with me if we limited the other two branches, and I say two, not just the legislative branch, but also the judicial branch, with some limitation. I'm not sure. I don't think eight years, which is the limitation on the executive branch, may, maybe 12 or something for uh, the legislative branch and the judicial branch. You have to, if you do it, though, you have to do it the way the executive branch was limited. It has to be constitutional. And... And some people do it unilaterally. I encourage colleagues or future colleagues or something not to do it unilaterally because basically that's seeding the field to some people who are just there forever. And, and usually the ones who, who take the Tom Coburn, I'm out in two years, um, 
you know, some of them are very good members and, and maybe of the more conservative free enterprise tilt and, and some people go to Congress to, to uh, uh, redistribute your wealth and, and, and they can stay there for a long, long time. <laughs> and so I want it to be, if it's, if, if it's constitutional, it will apply to everybody and then I think you could have a, a limit on the other two branches. Could be healthy. Chris, do you have a response? Yeah, on the first, uh, actually, the emphasis of my talk was not the emphasis of my talk was very much on uh, congressional delegation as opposed to presidential usurpation. Um, I would say that over the years, uh, presidents have been uh, more or less uh, uh, aggressive about uh, doing things where they didn't have statutory power. Uh, Franklin Roosevelt, uh, I think. This was, I don't know if it was right before or right after Pearl Harbor, but it was, it was clear war was coming, and he wanted to have some national industrial controls, just, just war-related price-wage controls. And he gave one of his talks, and he said, I want Congress to pass authority for national uh, production wage price controls, uh, and if they don't, I'm going to do it all by myself, and I'm going to do it out of... Um, uh, my prerogative as the repository of the confidence of the American people, and I will be doing it on behalf of the people, and uh, when we no longer need these powers, I will give it back to the people. I mean, it, was an, it was amazing, you know, beyond anything that President Obama said. So, so you can find examples of this. In general, I would say in the past 30 years, uh, the major impetus has been congressional delegation. If you look at the creation of one after another, agency with immense discretionary power that's really new, far beyond anything that happened during the New Deal. Uh, things have changed recently. Uh, I, I would mark the change actually to the end of the Bush administration. Uh, during the financial crisis of 2008, uh, the administration uh, uh, did things that were you know, far beyond any, anything in uh, precedent. Plus, the administration formed an alliance with the Federal Reserve Board and made unilateral uh, de facto appropriations of you know, hundreds of billions of dollars, and everybody in Congress said, I didn't know they could do that. <laughs> so, so, I mean, th that, was, uh, that was a pretty big deal. Uh, and then President Obama, I, I believe, has been much more exorbitant in his uh, unilateral claims on things that he has really cared about, especially in uh, Obamacare, in several of the appointments, uh, in the immigration, uh, uh, matter. Although I think the Obamacare uh, decisions are uh, are the most uh, amazing, and some examples I gave managing the bankruptcy, just kind of stepping in and saying, "Here's how we're going to allocate uh, the assets in bankruptcy." Uh, these tax tax inversions, never seen anything like like that before. Part, part uh, so, of the so I don't know what I I just beyond uh, you know I've got my political views on these matters, but looking at it institutionally. I think it's too soon to say whether the Obama administration is a blip or a trend. I, I really don't know. I, in my heart of hearts, I think it's a blip, but I'm sort of uh, impressed by the continuum from essentially 2007 to, uh, to today. I, I would break it up in a couple of pieces. I, I think, obviously, FDR, of course, you had World War II, you had very, the wartime scenario. I would think if you go back, I started when Reagan started, so you had Reagan and Bush and Clinton and Bush. I think 
the Republicans in that group were pretty assertive of presidential authority when it came to international, but not so on domestic. Um, I also think all, including President Clinton, had a much greater respect for Congress. I went to the White House when Bill Clinton was president a lot. I went to the White House a lot when, when both Bushes were president, a lot. I mean, a lot. I went to the White House more often in any of those terms as part of the leadership um, than Mitch McConnell's been in the last six years. I probably went to the White House more in, in one year than he went to the White House the last six years. He, he's only been invited to the White House three or four times in six years. I used to go like every week. I mean, so there was, there was much greater dialogue. There was much greater respect for the institution from President Clinton and both President Bush's and, and, and Ronald Reagan. Reagan and, and Bush were, and Cheney, they were very assertive on, on international authority. And, and uh, so, so a little different. And, but, and, and then the one thing that Chris mentioned, and, and that was the financial bailout, that was right at the very end of, of uh, President Bush's uh, term. And that was also kind of the war it's a crisis. crisis. Yeah. There, there was, I mean, I, I remember being there, and I was never one that wanted to have the government or the Fed or, or the Treasury Secretary to have such unlimited powers. But I was also worried whether or not the bank would be able to cash checks. The bank across the street, the bank that you know, all it, it, it was a scary time. And and uh, uh, so anyway, I make actually that was '09. That was after I was I, I had already retired. But I do remember being kind of frightened about that. And I know Secretary Paulson went up and said, "Here's a blank piece of paper. I want this authority." And and Congress did rewrite it, but he still ended up getting a whole hell of a lot of authority. And and uh, but that was a scary time. That was that was. Hmm. <laughs> Are we going to have a? You know, we'd already seen the stock market. You had Nasdaq went from five thousand to one thousand. You, you, you had a crash. You had oil actually went from one hundred and thirty to to forty. Or you know, it, you had a lot of things happening yeah. in a very short period of time, and people were worried. Uh, are we going to have a financial collapse that we have never seen in, in most of our lifetimes? It's kind of it was a scary time. We're going to have to wrap it up at this point. I want to thank both of our panel. I just banged my own microphone. I want to thank uh, both of our panelists for an absolutely fascinating discussion. And I think we can sum it up by saying that the coming of the new Congress in January offers an opportunity not just to pass new legislation, but also to restore some of the powers of a constitutional Congress. And I hope that in this discussion, people have a chance to review it, see it on C-SPAN, that some of our legislators will have a chance to realize they've got a roadmap and a way to go forward with it. Thanks very much, and thanks for coming.